Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. <laughs> hey. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just leave that on there. Yeah. Um, hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Team. We are back after a little bit of time off, but at least one of us has not really had any time off. <laughs> nope. uh, I have. I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks, and with me, as always, is the very overworked Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hi. <laughs> so, before we get into like the main discussion today, which we actually changed up at the last minute, but I'm very excited about it. Uh, Karen, what have you been up to? Oh my gosh, so many things. I, um, yeah, I have not had just a night at home since november 1st i realized this morning so i'm a little tired <laughs> um but it's been it's been good i've been um watching so many movies it, it's weird because it's like after um after you know like all of september and october trying to beg publicists to let me see stuff um like suddenly they had all these screenings for me. You know, it was like for a long time, everything was during the day. So I couldn't go because I have a day job and everything. Um, but then all of a sudden they're like, here is a screening for every movie you need to see at times that you can see them. And then it was just like, well, now I have to go. So <laughs> in the past month, oh my gosh, I have seen, let me see. I'm pulling up my letterbox right now. Um, and I probably didn't even log everything. Um, but yeah, so let's see, uh, Belfast, Spencer, Memoria, Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, that's one we can talk about, uh, let's see, Night Raiders, Tick Tick Boom, The Power of the Dog, Jockey, Prayers for the Stolen, Cow, Encanto, House of Gucci, The Tender Bar, Don't Look Up, Come On, Come On, <laughs> like, so many movies, ah, oh, it's been fun, wow. but I am tired <laughs> wow so okay of all of those let's be positive today of yeah all of those what have been your favorites what are like the ones that you know people definitely need to see oh my gosh the power of the dog is yeah. incredible i i published my review finally yesterday so it's on citizen dame but um i i loved that film so much and it was interesting because it feels like for a long time you know it's going somewhere, but it kind of feels more just like this, um, uh, I mean, it's very slow burn, but it, mm -hmm. it, for large stretches of it, it feels like it's more of just kind of a, like a sl snapshot of life on the, the plains or something. Um, and you're not totally sure that there's like a real overarching plot. And then it gets to a point where you're just like, Oh, 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 I know where this is going and this is interesting. And it's it's very, very cool. And even when you're not totally sure that it's going somewhere specific, it's still just so 
so captivating. Um, the it's beautiful to look at. the The cinematography is incredible. The production design is really lovely. Um, the performances are great, and it's just like these really unhappy people. It kind of this is going to sound weird, but in some ways, it kind of reminded me a little bit, although much less um, flashier and dense. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of watching Legends of the Fall, where it's just these beautiful, yeah, which very, very, very different movie, completely mm-hmm. different stories. Like that's that's why I say it's like a weird comparison, but it's just this beautiful like Montana setting. It's in Prohibition era, so I'm, they both are, you know. So it's like in the twenties. And just deeply, deeply unhappy people um, at the center of the story. But the ways that they deal with those issues that they have are very different. Um, And uh, it's just, I don't know, it's just such a beautiful film. I think that for a lot of people, this is going to be Jane Campion's most accessible. Um, Which, that's a good thing i think because anything that can help people appreciate the amazing director that she is i'm all for it and it's it's just it's just so good uh it's my favorite performance from benedict cumberbatch who i i've always kind of liked but never loved and like he has this habit of playing these just like asshole characters but it always feels sure. like, yeah, but it always feels like they're just kind of assholes just because like his Dr. Strange, he's just kind of a douchebag because he can be, you know, until he, he softens up a bit. But like once he gets a better understanding of the world and stuff, but, you know, at first he's just an egotistical, just jerk, you know, and he plays a lot of characters like that where it's like, who broke you, you know, in this one, um, you know, pretty you can just sense pretty early on that there's a very specific answer to that question. And, um, and he, there, so there's just like these layers of it that are, are just so, so beautiful when they're peeled back and so sad. And it's, oh my gosh, I cannot say enough good things about it. That's awesome. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that it's good because uh, I've been looking forward to that one, definitely. And that's uh, going to be on... It's going to be on Netflix, it's yeah. Netflix, yeah. I thought so. I was like, I know that's it's going to stream, but yeah. I'm looking forward to that. I'm, I yeah. am really excited about it. Oh, so good. December 1st, that'll be on Netflix. Awesome. Um, I thought they were doing a separate theatrical release and then it would be out like a couple weeks later. But when I fired up Netflix yesterday, it said coming December 1st. So I was like, oh, all right. Cool. Yeah. So there was that one. I also absolutely love Belfast. Oh, those good. Two, yeah. Yeah. Those two are my, like, two favorite movies of the year. Um, Belfast is, and they're, they could not be more different from each other, you know? Um, but Belfast is, like, it's really sweet, but it's not, um, but it's not, like, sugary. It's not, um, it's, how do I describe it? Like, it's not um, overly reliant on the happy memories of childhood. Like, it it deals with really serious things. This is Ireland, you know, in 1969. And anybody who knows what was happening at that point knows that that was a really tumultuous time. Um, there's a great film that came out a couple years ago called 71, which, there you go, it's two years later in Belfast. And it's about a soldier that's basically stuck on the wrong side of the wall during this conflict. Um, and so this is this movie 
um, is, you know, as things are really starting to get dangerous in Belfast, uh, and the fighting between Catholics and Protestants is really, uh, really getting to be very, very dangerous for the Catholics. And, um, but it's told through the perspective of this child who's watching this dangerous world around him and watching his parents and his grandparents have to have these very serious conversations that most of the time he's just kind of listening in on because he's a kid and he's just hearing stuff. But um, so it's, it's, it's really interesting the way it's done. And it's really, it's really great because uh, I think that a lot of times in these stories, um, either we're not, getting this from the point of view of like a child going through it. Or if we are, it's sort of papered over with this, like everything was great. I had no idea things were wrong or everything is absolutely terrible and the world is falling apart. And this is somewhere in between. And that's why it's so, so good. That's great. Yeah. Because that, that, I mean, when you say that time period is such a, it's such an odd thing, I think to anyone who's kind of looking in from the outside, because it is, it's modern, urban warfare but it's people that are existing within this this world you know so it's not like everybody is involved in the ira or the british army or anything like that but but everyone is affected by it so that's that's great i've i've heard really good things about belfast as well so i'm I'm, again glad to hear from you that it is a good film because i do trust you karen (laughs) (laughs) thank you It's just yeah. your responses, except for the <laughs> few times that you're just 100% wrong. Which well, I'm never wrong, but occasionally <laughs> we do disagree. <laughs> um, yeah, so those are my two favorites. But there's also been just some other great stuff that I've seen, too. Last night I got to see Come On, Come On. Um, oh, yeah. Which was really another one that's really sweet weirdly there's so many black and white movies this year (laughs) um i don't really know what's going on there but uh but yeah so um that one it's another one that's a you know about a kid although joaquin phoenix is the main character in it and the kid is really um uh what do you call it he's i mean he's the support you could make the argument that they're both the leads of that movie but um Really, it's it's about Joaquin Phoenix and his character's, like, growing relationship with his nephew. And just how that builds and, and how he finds himself inspired by this kid. So, um, yeah. So, it's re- it's really sweet. The kid, oh my gosh. Like, it's funny because for a bit, he's, he really annoyed me. And I thought, oh my gosh, why are people saying they love this movie? I can't deal with two hours of this child being just so weird and, and just such a like such a smart mouth but <laughs> then it's like he grows on you it's like i kind of was along with joaquin's journey in it because i was just like oh at first he's just oh my gosh stop talking for a minute and then it's like i just want to spend all my time with him he's so perfect and adorable <laughs> <laughs> so yeah and then let's see what else have i seen i don't even know um so I went to AFI last week and I'm still working on reviews for stuff that I saw. So those are coming. I did do tick, tick, boom, but you said to keep it positive. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) well, I I just wanted to know kind of like what your favorite ones are. You could talk about the ones that you absolutely despised as well. Well, (laughs) 
So, okay, to be fair, there was not anything that I absolutely despised, even yeah. Tick, Tick, Boom. That's Although, good. honestly, the way people have reacted to me not liking that movie, it's just like, oh, we're doing this again. Okay. Well, like, right. like I like I said, you kind of ran into, you ran headlong into the theater kids. Mm-hmm. And sometimes... They are mean. The theater kids can be really mean. And I'm saying this as someone who's friends with and kind of has been adjacent to numerous theater kids. Uh, and I love I love you guys. But also sometimes when people disagree, you're just like, well, you just don't understand. And it's just like, no, I do. I do understand, but I don't like it. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's just like, no, you have to know the entire backstory. I don't need to know the entire backstory. It's a matter of whether or not I enjoyed what I watched. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm allowed to not like it. Yeah. Well, and that was but that was one of the things that I said in my review is this movie is very much for theater kids. That is who this movie is for. And they're going to love it and good for them. I'm happy for them. Um but it just didn't work for me. So um yeah, it's and it's it's not like, it's not a terrible movie, but it definitely felt like Lin-Manuel Miranda, who I have a lot of respect for. I think that um, I like the fact that he's using his um, his success to do good things for his community and to raise awareness for things. And, and I, you know, I love Hamilton. I have mixed feelings on In the Heights, but I'm happy that he's he was successful with that, you know. And then I saw Encanto this week, and I loved Encanto. I was really surprised by how much I liked it. Um, so my problem is not with him as a as a person or as a creator, but I did start to feel like, um, he just and you and I have talked about this too a lot that he just kind of, uh, just keeps you know, regurgitating the same types of material. Like there's not a lot of um, expansion in his abilities. Like he feels very limited as a creator. And I think that that's pretty evident to me in Tick, Tick, Boom, because it it feels very much like he's just, you know, Jonathan Larson is so revered um, and Rent is such a beloved show and I'm not going to, I'm not going to deny that it's been really influential and that it did, you know, it was part of kind of this, you know, new, uh, new landscape of, of theater, you know, in the nineties that's gone even into today, but, but it felt like because of how beloved Larson is that Miranda was just afraid to do anything that would really interrogate anything about him that was not, you know, not perfect. And so it feels a little bit, um, idolatrous. And that was, that was unfortunate. I think that, cause th- there's some really obvious scenes in the movie where it's like, yeah, he's being a dick right now. And, and it's not like they try to pretend he's not, but nobody really calls him out. And when the, when he does get called out, it's just kind of like, Oh, okay, now everything's fine and there's no there's never any consequences for for his actions really. And so it just yeah, so it just it felt like just they were afraid to to say anything negative or just didn't want to tarnish tarnish the legacy. So, which is in that case like if you're not going to, you know, dig under the surface a little bit, then why are you even making this movie? 
Yeah, there's there's always I think a danger of it's it's one of the things I've I've often felt like fans of things should not make m- movies about them, <laughs> um, and I, I know that that's kind of a weird thing to say, but it sometimes it's true. I, I think yeah. that there there are times when um, if you love something too much, you don't want to go into the 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 less palatable aspects of it, right? Yeah. Um, and that can be and that, that can be really hard to deal with as a fan, as someone who like loves something. So you want to be like, well, I love this, but you have to be willing to go a little bit deeper and to to be like, well, you know what? He wasn't perfect because he was a human being, you know. That and, exactly. and that's particularly when you're talking about stories about real people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to be like, he he can't possibly be perfect. Right. Yeah. Um, and that that and I think that there is that sensation that if he wasn't if if someone wasn't perfect that there well that means that they were a bad person it's like no they were a complicated person because human beings are complicated none of us are perfect you know none of us if you made the the biography of our lives right none of us would come off 100 percent perfect right exactly well and that's that's the thing like i love flawed people you know i love seeing when people are, are messy when they're not um you know, when they're not perfect. Obviously, I don't want to see racist, racist assholes and stuff. But, like, I don't want to, to deify that type of thing. But, you know, someone who's just become so wrapped up in themselves and ignores the people around them and then has to suffer because of it. I think that there's something really interesting in there. And, w- and especially when they learn their lesson from that. And this was like, maybe Larson learned something. Maybe he didn't. I have no idea from watching this because it just kind of glosses over it because everything turns out just like perfect and happy. And it just, it felt, yeah, like it it just, it felt too much like um, Miranda was just too close Mm -hmm. to it. Well, it it kind of reminds me of like um, all that jazz, right? Mm -hmm. Which is Mm -hmm. basically Bob Fosse telling his own story yeah and he makes himself look like an asshole Mm -hmm. like and that's what's amazing about that film is that it is about art and it's about but it's about like the the affairs that he had and the children that he had and the times that he fucked up and the mistakes that he made Mm -hmm. and and so you've got this film that is being made by the person that it's about right who's essentially being like i was a jerk yeah well it's it's like the the difference between bohemian rhapsody and rocket man where yeah where you've got bohemian rhapsody executive produced by two of the the members of queen and the, you know, the guys that were there when all this happened and are trying to, oh, we were, you know, we were home with our families every night. We weren't doing that shit. That was all Freddy. Um, <laughs> which is like, okay, like, guys, right. Like, fuck you were. Yeah. Like, fuck you were. You were a, Yeah, you were, you were stone cold band. sober when you did Night at the Opera. Sure. You were, okay. You were rock stars in the 1970s. Are you <laughs> exactly. kidding me? Exactly, like whatever. And then you've got Rocket Man, where I mean, Elton John also executive produced that. He was really heavily involved in the writing of the script, and he was like, "If you're gonna do this, tell my story." I sucked sometimes. I was terrible to people, and they were terrible to me. And it was all part of my process and my journey to become who I became. And Rocket Man is a far superior film to Bohemian Rhapsody for a lot of reasons, but 
That's a big one. He was not... He was not shy about... Elton John was not shy about letting people see the messy parts of him. Yeah, and that, that's definitely important when you're talking about representing real human beings. And, and I think that you can... And as we prove in Rocketman, you don't leave that film feeling bad about Elton John or feeling no. like, oh man, Elton John was this total jerk. You, you leave it feeling like, oh, he was a person and he came through a lot and he did a lot and he fucked up sometimes and he didn't fuck up other times. And... You, you feel much more like he was a real human being that, you know, and is a real human being that went through this shit. Yeah, um, exactly. And was responsible for many of the things that he did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It wasn't just done to him. But then it makes you so happy that he was able to get through that and turn his life around and, and not yeah. die an early death. And, and to be happy and, and in a loving marriage and family today. It makes you happy for where he's at instead of yeah. just like, ah, fuck you. <laughs> exactly. So any, anything, any other films that you want to address before we move on? Um, I did also see Purge for the Stolen, which is Mexico's official submission. I've seen a couple of the official submissions now mm-hmm. for the Oscars. So Memoria was an interesting experience. <laughs> Purge for the Stolen is good. Um, yeah. So look for those. Memoria, man. <laughs> I'm taking oh, up too no. much time. I know we want to get to the to oh, no. meat of this, but <laughs> I, you know, it's funny because I still stand by what we said. Um, as far as like movies should, movies are made to be accessible to people, and to you know, taking this and just putting it on this like tour where you like it's it feels elitist and not everyone can see it. It's like I still stand by like. At some point, you need to make this movie available to people. Mm-hmm. After having seen it, though, I kind of understand. I have a better understanding of why they're doing it the way that they're doing it. And I suspect eventually it will. Eventually being, like, you know, at least a year down the line. Uh, it will probably get some sort of a streaming release. But I think that people just watching it at home will not. I think it's going to have very limited mileage. Because it is a commitment and it requires a lot of patience and trust in the filmmaker. There, I mean, there's just like all these scenes, shots where literally nothing happens and it feels like you're just looking at a painting. Um, but, you know, except for it is film, so see, things are moving, but there's not a lot of plot to it. It's, it's not, um, this is not story driven and it's not really even character driven. And so it's, it feels like watching an art exhibit. And so for that, I'm like, okay, now I understand why they're doing it the way that they're doing it because, um, by taking it on this tour, because I think that people do need to kind of prepare themselves for what this is and that this isn't just a standard film with a, you know, beginning middle and end or anything like that so that being said though it needs eventually it does need to be available on streaming and i think it will be and and there are a lot there are films like that there are art house films that are like that i mean i i watched tarkovsky's stalker on a small screen i did not see it in like a movie theater or anything like that i found it riveting um but it is it's that kind of a film where nothing much happens uh and a lot of it is is just the the camera dwelling on people or a landscape or something like that and and nothing is actually going on um 
you know, but those are hard. Those are difficult films. Those are not films oh, yeah. that you're like, um, you know, you're not sitting down to have a, a great adventure with them or anything like that. But. Exactly. And that's why I'm like, okay, yeah, I think most the mo- most average viewers, if they did for whatever reason decide to turn this on, they're going to turn it off in the first five minutes because they're going to be like, what the fuck is this? You know, but um, but people who are who understand going in what it's about, I think will really find things to enjoy. It's definitely not something that like begs to be seen on the big screen or needs to be seen with a perfect sound system to really understand the scope of what it is. I just think more that I'm, um, but it's more just the, um, the experience of it. Mm -hmm. And like this, I think this more than anything really, um, benefits from watching it with a, with a group and then sitting afterwards and going like, well, so what did you think about what we just saw? Because there is a moment in this that is so, what the fuck is just, is happening right now? Am I actually seeing this? That it's like, I needed to talk to people afterwards. <laughs> okay. All right. So, yeah. I can't wait for you to see it. I I will be, I will be interested in, in seeing it eventually, which, you know, I'll see it. I'll see it at yeah. some point, probably. I, I have enjoyed his other films, so the ones that I've seen so far. I haven't actually seen any of his other films, so now I really want to go back and look for more of them. I mean, the, the famous one is Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives. I think that's the big one. Ooh. Um, and, and that one, things do happen. It's a very slow film, um, uh-huh. but, you know, it's very lyrical and very visual and everything, but um, it, things do happen in it. Uh all right, well, let's let's move on. We decided today that we are going to go back to our final Noir Vember episode next week, but we decided after after conversations going on on the internets and discussions that we have had that we're going to talk about Ghostbusters. So we're going to go from Memoria to Ghostbusters. Yes, we are. An excellent transition. <laughs> Um, it's about memory and nostalgia. I don't know. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> we should probably preface this by saying that neither of us has seen Ghostbusters Afterlife yet. Yeah. So, A, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about it. And B, when we do, it's under the understanding that we haven't seen it. And that's honestly why I don't want to talk about it. Because everything I know about it is just what I've either assumed from watching trailers or gotten from reading what other people have said. So. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think we're gonna kind of focus on the the earlier films and um, and the what ones we like about them, what we what we like about them, what we don't like about them. You know why why they're so so iconic and and such a problem in so many ways. Um, so I'm trying to think about where to start. So like let's let's start with Ghostbusters, uh, the horror comedy from 1984 this is um you know film starring bill murray dan Aykroyd, and harold ramus and uh ernie hudson as um as ghost exterminators that's what they are right and that's that's the basic idea is that what if there were exterminators but for paranormal entities um and i mean i i have to say this was a film that was made before i was born thank Uh, you for that i was at the theater opening weekend (laughs) 
I, you know, when I saw it as a kid, and I think my parents rented it or something like that, when I saw it as a kid, I loved it. Like, I found it funny. It was, um, it was entertaining. It was weird. It was, it was scary in places. Like, I think one of the things Ghostbusters does really well is strikes this balance between legitimately, you know, frightening moments and concepts and actually using those to comedic effect. And a lot of that is a result of the, the actors themselves and the script. Um, but so let's start out with just like, first of all, is Ghostbusters a comedy? <laughs> I don't understand the question. I will not respond to it. Uh, this is apparently a subject of debate, which I always found very weird. And, and this actually started way back in 2016 when um, Ghostbusters Answer the Call came out and people were like, oh, they, they tried to make Ghostbusters funny. And when I first heard that, I was like, but, but what is isn't it funny like, i thought what? it was funny no? i mean there's there's jokes about twinkies and they're dick jokes the big there, twinkie there's like sex jokes there are you know all all kinds of humor and and you know even when the ghosts show up it's it's treated as funny right but the entire section of the film to do with slimer is funny so when people are like, no, this is, it's a horror film. It's like, I don't think it is actually. Um, and yeah, and it, does, yeah. it does kind of make me wonder like what, what people think it is and, and why this specific film is, is treated with such a weird kind of veneration. Um, and I'm saying this as someone who absolutely adores it. So what do you think, Karen? Is Ghostbusters a comedy? <laughs> Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, it very much is. I do think that it's one that falls into the, into that subcategory of like horror comedy because it does use horror elements. And there are, like you said, some scenes that are legitimately frightening, especially for a child. I was, you know, I was a kid when I saw it the first time and the second and the third and the fourth. But, um, but ultimately, like, the reason I loved the movie as a kid was not because it was a horror, but because it was so damn funny. And it made me just giggle. And there were definitely jokes I did not understand until I was much older. Um, like, I did not know what was going on with Ray and that ghost in his <laughs> dream. <laughs> Thankfully, I didn't know. <laughs> but, uh, um... But yeah, no, the movie is hilarious. It's so funny and it's very, uh, like, I'm sorry, but you don't put Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis and, and, um, oh my gosh. Bill Murray. Thank you. I can't believe <laughs> I just blanked on his name. Um, but you don't put them, like, they were all Saturday Night Live people and, and yeah. stuff. You know, you don't put them in your movie and then say, oh, but this is serious. Because it's not. It's it's self evidently not serious. That exactly. that's the thing. There's there's not, and I think that the characters within the world, the characters do take take things seriously, right? It's yeah. serious that like the world can end because of these ghosts. It's serious that like you know there's this supernatural entity that is trying to return. Gozer the Gozerian is serious, but I think one of the things that's so funny about it is that you know so they they do this whole setup where. Um, you know, it's like you have to choose the, sh the form of the destroyer, right? <laughs> Which is a great idea. Like, and that is a frightening concept. It's just like, oh my God, you have to, you are, you get to choose who is going to bring about the end of the world, right? Yeah. That's frightening. And in a horror film, that would be like this really terrifying entity. But of course, what happens is it's a gigantic marshmallow. 
<laughs> like that's and that's where the humor comes from it's just like oh my god he, and, and it's very human i think because you're just like oh, the only thing i can think of is mr stay puffed he was like, trying to think of something like the least threatening thing possible and that's what he came up with and yeah. and he summons this like kaiju <laughs> marshmallow man who's going to destroy new york you know and that's that's funny that that is where the humor comes from and it also comes from the fact that you know the reactions of everyone else the, of just being like what did you think of Rick? <laughs> what did you do um and yeah and, and so that those are funny elements you know it takes things like um like, you know, images from The Exorcist and stuff like that, and, and kind of makes them light and funny and sort of points out the fact that it is silly. Uh, the idea, you know, the, the whole sequence where Dana is is possessed and she's like floating above her sheets. He says, oh, I like a woman who sleeps above the sheets. Four <laughs> feet above her sheets. It's yeah. funny, right? It's funny, <laughs> but it's also making light of the of the fact that, you know, this is a frightening image. But it's funny because he's making it into a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I'm very confused. The only thing that I can think of of the people who insist that like Ghostbusters isn't a comedy or something like that is one they've only they only saw it when they were children, and some of the images were really imprinted on them because, like I say, there are frightening moments in the film, or they're just being disingenuous. They're they're ignore. They're like they know that it's a comedy and are trying to sort of reinforce the sort of mythos of Ghostbusters. Um, and, and specifically how, you know, oh, they made things funny in the, the one with the girls. It's like, yeah, because it's, it's funny. I, I don't know, what, what are you looking for exactly? Yeah. Well, I think the real reason, and we'll get to answer the call in a bit, but I, I think the real reason that people took some people took exception with the comedy in that one is because it was calling them out and they didn't like that. And it's definitely, it's definitely a little bit different type of humor in answer the call than it is in the original Ghostbusters. Cause like you said, um, a lot of the stuff, well, I mean, in both versions, it's the, the storyline itself is playing it serious. It's just all the things around it that make it so funny, but it's, it's, it's an 80s comedy, you know, and, and, um, it, it's New York in the 1980s was not a pretty sparkly place. And it, it, so it's got a little bit of that grittiness and, and, um, and, you know, one of the things about it, that always struck me as interesting was the fact that these guys are scientists in the beginning of the movie. It starts off there, you know, they're working at a university. They're in this kind of, you know, dungeon of a lab, but they're, they're at an, a prestigious university allowed to do all their, their, you know, paranormal, you know, testing and stuff. And then once that gets, you know, once they get fired from that and get kicked out, then they go out on their own, and once they figure out how to catch the ghosts, they just become exterminators, and then they just settle into that. You have you still have Egon doing scientific experimentation, but not not the way that you would expect scientists to do so. And um, like yeah. they just settle on the one protein or proton pack, and then that's it. You know, and and it's those kinds of things where it's like they just become exterminators and then that's it they just are are fine with with this new lot in life 
Yeah, that's what they, well, they, a lot of it is about, you know, in a more serious manner, a lot of it is about kind of these, these intellects moving to the private sector. I think that it, it, we have to remember that Venkman in particular, the Bill Murray character, kind of thinks it's all a crock. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's using his position to hit on women. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't, he believes in ghosts, but he doesn't really believe in ghosts. He just kind of thinks this is silly. And, he's very much the skeptic, yeah. Yeah, whereas both Egon and Ray, in, in slightly different ways, believe in what they're doing and are are almost too earnest in a lot of ways. Ray's problem is that he's way too earnest about what's happening. And so he just assumes that other people will accept what he's saying when it sounds crazy, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, so and then when, oh, sorry. Uh, well, I was going to say, they're insubordinate, they're they're very anti-authoritarian. Most of the villains in the film are authority figures. Yeah. Um, the dean of the college, the mayor, Gozer, um, uh, Walter Peck, etc. These are, you know, they're trying to kind of hobble these, these uh, men who are trying to, to do something good, who are trying to experiment and are just automatically responsive to authority. And, and in that sense, though, the characters are very much like the Marx Brothers or the Three Stooges, where it's like they can't resist mocking mm -hmm. Walter Peck. Like, Venkman cannot physically stop himself from mocking this guy who's actually, like, in charge of whether or not they're allowed to stay open. <laughs> right. Which is interesting when Winston gets, uh, gets introduced, Ernie Hudson, because he is just a guy who needs a job because like when he's having his interview with Janine and she's like, do you believe in? And she like lists like the Loch Ness monster and UFOs and all these mm -hmm. crazy things. And he's just like, Hey, if there's a study paycheck in it, I believe in anything you say. And, um, so he, and, and I think because of, and I really liked uh, your essay, by the way, I read it this morning. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I, I really think that it's interesting, especially that some of the stuff you were talking about with, um, or you wrote about with them being really concerned about, you know, going too far into, you know, the racial elements of this character because he is the only black guy in it. Um, but it's, it's interesting to the, the, I think kind of subtle way, or at least it felt subtle, you know, because I didn't understand it, you know, in the eighties, but the way you've got these these white guys who are able to like mortgage the family farm and live off of their savings to, to start this business and then you've got this this other person who just needs a job because the economy has yeah. not been as kind to him and um and sorry yeah the 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 three um the three Venkman um Ray and and Egon all kind of get pulled down to a certain degree because yeah. they are in a fair so yeah like, like you say they have funding they have um a place at a university they have all of this equipment everything and then by their own behavior and by their own studies they get driven out mm -hmm. um winston is very different he is represented very much as a a working class guy who's looking for a job so it doesn't really matter to him you know do you believe in ghosts do you not believe in ghosts like i, I don't care um you're going to pay me and that's what I need, you know? And right. so there's, there is a really interesting kind of dichotomy between him and, and the other three. And he ultimately, he doesn't immediately just accept everything, but he accepts what he sees. 
So mm-hmm. when he sees ghosts, when he experiences paranormal stuff, he goes like, okay, I, I believe that, right? There isn't this secondary, you know, you've got to convince me or anything right. like that. Yeah. The other thing about Winston, too, just going back to what you were talking about, with, especially with, with Vankman and the way that he challenges and mocks authority, Winston doesn't do that because he knows that he can't. He, he just, like, he's he's pretty compliant when they're told, you know, to shut things down. Or when they're, when he's arrested, he wants a different lawyer from those guys. He does not want to be tied in with them. Because he's just like, this is bad for me. Like, you guys, you guys can get away with this stuff way more than I can. And, and I like the fact that he kind of, he's so practical. He's <laughs> such a practical dude. And, and he does say, like, you know, so he says to her, just like, Ray, Someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. Like, he's just like, that's just what makes sense in this particular situation. Exactly. And so it does, yeah, I I wish that the film had been able to go into his character more. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, in some ways, I think that the the sequel does that. And it doesn't 100% work, but it does make more of an attempt to bring him in. Um, yeah. And part of it was because of is because of the production history of the original film. Initially, there Eddie Murphy was supposed to play that character, and then he pulled out. And so there was this kind of back and forth where they wanted to include that fourth Ghostbuster, but didn't obviously did not know how to treat that character sensitively and intelligently. Yeah. And so he gets kind of he gets kind of marginalized, but at the same time he does kind of occupy this really interesting space where he isn't um he does avoid stereotyping. He does avoid this sense that he's like a secondary figure. Mhm. Yeah, very much. I remember watching something a long time ago where uh um I'm trying to think what it was that I was even watching, but Ernie Hudson was talking about that he he was all excited because his agent had sent him the script and he found out that it was a role Eddie Murphy had walked away from and he was just like, oh, I, I'm so excited. I'm going to have a major part in this movie. And then he's reading the script and he's like, wait, what character am I playing? I don't show up until page 70. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I don't know, like I, I can imagine how that must have felt a little bit of a gut punch to him when when that happened but also but he still is able to make such an impact like when you think of the ghostbusters you think of at least for me i think of all four of them and it almost becomes kind of a surprising reminder every time that he's not in the first hour of the movie yeah it's it's true he he is such a for a character that is introduced very late and then isn't given as much to do as the other three um he really he does make an impact and i think that it it does come from that kind of that the practicality that he represents just kind of like i'm here because i need a job yeah um now i am involved this job is not worth 11.5 a year i love that line oh my gosh (laughs) Wow, how times have changed. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just like, oh, my. Um, but, and then he's kind of like, okay, now apparently we might be bringing about the apocalypse. <laughs> Got to deal with that now. These guys are definitely insane. Now I'm being brought into the mayor's office and I'm being arrested. You know, all of that stuff. It, it does lend that kind of, it brings the film, I think, what what could have happened is that the film could have gone off into too much of a fantasy world and his character actually helps to keep it 
centered and to keep it anchored and to kind of give that commentary of like, this is crazy, this is silly, this is a little, this is, you know, outlandish. Um, and, and he sort of provides that for the film, which is really needed in a film like this. Yeah, very much so. Um, one of the other things that I, I really liked is going back to the, the issue of comedy is that those, those moments when things do get really serious, right? Or are edging towards seriousness. So, you know, some of Egon's speech in the, um, uh, in the prison Mm-hmm. where he's explaining this is what's happening right he's figured out you know that this is basically going to bring about the end of the world um and he's got this long speech of like kind of just explaining what's going on and then venkman begins singing um so be good uh, for yeah, goodness he, be- <laughs> he begins he begins singing santa claus is coming to town and you're like Okay, so it just lightens everything immediately. And it kind of reminds you that, you know, this is really serious, but also it's really silly. Mm-hmm. And and that relationship is very important in, in the first Ghostbusters, that this is something that we're taking seriously, but is still funny. Yeah. And has to be funny. Because if it's not funny, it's just going to be so dead serious that it, it will be painful, you know? Yeah. Well, and also, like, well, if the world's going to end, it's going to end. If we can't do anything about it, why freak out, you know? <laughs> In yeah, this exactly. case, they can do something about it, but not if they're locked up. Exactly. So, um, yeah, so let's let's talk briefly, at least. I really want to talk about um, uh, Ghostbusters Answer the Call, but let's talk briefly about Ghostbusters 2. Yes. Which is very often viewed as the far lesser of the original two Ghostbusters films um, with good reason. You know, I, I don't think it's as good. I don't think, I think it's a lot cleaner in a lot of ways and doesn't kind of, like you are saying, that grittiness of New York in the eighties, we're kind of coming out of that. We're coming into the nineties. It's much shinier and cleaner and not as, as, as intense in a lot of ways. Um, however, I love Ghostbusters too. <laughs> And I, I love do it. too. And I have to just jump in here and say that I loved it in 1989 when I went and saw it in the theater with my family. And I was shocked years later when I found out that people didn't love this movie. I was <laughs> like, wait, what? I thought everyone just did. <laughs> well, and one of the things that I like about it, and this this was mentioned actually the other day on Twitter, and, and it's absolutely true. The, the conceit behind it is what if everyone in New York had to be nice for 24 hours, right? That's the idea behind <laughs> yeah. Ghostbusters 2. And of course, you're just like, oh my God. <laughs> it, it's still it has one of my favorite quotes about new york which is that being miserable and treating other people like dirt is every new yorker's god-given right <laughs> and it's just like yes but then it's also this reinforcement of the whole point right what is causing this you know new manifestation of the apocalypse basically is everybody being mean to each other is all of the bad feelings and the nastiness and the misery in New York City. And it's sort of saying like, we have to be nice. We've got to sing and dance and be kind to one another. And that's how we're gonna defeat this great evil. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Before we even go into that though, I have to just say that one of the things that I really appreciate about Ghostbusters 2, and I think one of the things that other people don't, is that after the events of the first Ghostbusters, here we are, it's five years later, Literally, because it's, you know, the movie came out five, the movies came out five years apart, but also in their timeline, it's been five years. And um, 
they're not big heroes. They saved the world from the apocalypse, and they are not heroes. Venkman's got a, you know, low-level cable access paranormal show that people laugh at. You've got Ray and Winston doing parties, like, dressed up as the Ghostbusters. Like, they're not, they're not big, like, everyone knows who they are, but they're still just kind of, like, trying to, you know do their thing and, and make ends meet and stuff. It's 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 interesting because mm-hmm. and, and also the fact that Vankman and Dana didn't end up together. Like, here they are. It's been five years. She's gone off and married someone else and had someone else's kid. And um they haven't seen each other in a long time. Like I I, I think it's just interesting because it, it subverts the expectations that at the end of the first movie everyone lives happily ever after and everything turns out perfect for them. Well, and I think that's one of the things that maybe makes some people mad about the film is that you yeah. there there is that setup of just like, oh, now they're heroes, right? Right. Like, but they're not. Like, I think there's even a reference in the second film to like them having to pay a whole bunch of fines because they destroyed like a block of New York. <laughs> right, exactly. Which right. is like, I'm sorry, as an outsider, that seems like such a New York thing. <laughs> it is, no, it is. It's just like, well, you saved the world, but you know what else you did? You like ripped up this section of Central Park West. Like, uh, we cannot have that. <laughs> um, no, but but that's that's the thing. They like, and they, they have a whole bunch of fines from the um, the EPA because they're like, you know, they basically caused a, caused a massive explosion. Um, which Walter Peck did that. Yes. Not them, but whatever. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, so, so I, I do think that that's one of the things that people kind of react against is that the Ghostbusters are not the heroes, right? They're not being treated as heroes. And, and it is without making it too terribly serious, it is kind of this, this reference of like, you know, just because it's kind of like, just because these guys did a great thing, but no one appreciates it. Um, and, and no one respects them still, they're still kind of the underdogs and they kind of have to be, you know, they have to continue to be the underdogs. Um, and that's, I really think that that kind of lack of, of understanding from certain fans is part of what carried into Ghostbusters Answer the Call. Yeah. They did not want to accept the fact that the Ghostbusters were and always will be underdogs. And that in fact, if all you do is transpose the gender of the Ghostbusters into from men into women, it makes things a lot starker and a lot more real. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that's one of the things that I think works so well about Ghostbusters answer the call, because in the original films, you've got these highly educated men, um, very capable men, very talented men who sort of lose their positions and then build themselves back up. You, When you have four women doing that, you already have people that are have something that they're working against. They're working against the all of the, the, the attitudes towards their gender. And that's what so many of the early scenes with Erin um, at Columbia and dealing with her dean mm-hmm. is about, right? It's about her kind of clinging to this position that she has built up that she's worked really really hard to build and losing it very quickly because she's being associated with what they are considering to be kind of a crock yeah 
So I and and that's. I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> but the, I I think that what that's what makes Ghostbusters Answer the Call work really well, mm-hmm. um, is that it kind of takes some of those concerns and it says, well, it's not just about a group of men, primarily white men, right? It's it's about a group of women and women have to struggle even harder and women are kind of the perennial underdogs because simply by virtue of their gender. And a lot of people don't want to hear that and a lot of people don't want to identify with that. Well, because then it forces them to accept that they're part of the problem. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, it And what Ghostbusters Answer the Call does also is it vilifies the, the underdog male. Yep. Yeah, quite literally, so, because he's the villain of that story. Yeah. And and it's it's interesting because, like, if you look at the first two films, um, like, okay, so so the, the whole thing with um, Gozer and that building and all that, like, obviously that was something that was originally, the building was constructed intentionally by a man who wanted to usher in the apocalypse, but then what ends up happening in their life, because that guy's long gone, kind of just supernatural forces, it just kind of just took a while for this to take effect. But in Answer the Call, it's literally being done by a man that they interact with and see. Mm -hmm. And and he's just, he's using his poor me, I've been so, uh, I've been so mistreated and abused. And like, sure, that's terrible that he's been bullied and things. But most people that have been bullied that severely don't try to destroy the entire world. <laughs> well, and, and that's one of my favorite scenes in the film is when, you know, he's kind of justifying himself to them, right? right? He's saying, like, you don't know what it's like to be undervalued. <laughs> you don't know what it's like. And what's amazing is that, you know, is this harangue where he's like, you don't know what it's like to, you know, have people ignore you, have people treat you badly. And he's talking to... Four women in STEM, in STEM, right? <laughs> one of whom is black, one of whom is is chubby, right? One mm. of whom is obviously queer. Yep. Um, and he's talking to these women, and and I love their expressions, and I love the fact that they never like just one hundred percent say like, "Wait a minute, what the fuck, dude? Like, right. do you see <laughs> us? Do you know us?" Mm-hmm. They're just kind of like. Well, yeah, it sucks, but also, like, you can't just destroy the world because it sucks. Right. Well, that's and, the thing is, like, they try to empathize with him. They yeah. don't, like, in that moment, they're like, no, there's lots of good things to live for. And soup. Soup. <laughs> and and <laughs> salad. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the thing is, like, they don't just, like, he's definitely, obviously, the villain. And they're trying to stop him. But they're doing so as women do by trying to relate to him and by trying to show him that this isn't the answer and there's a, another way. And yeah. and I, I, I love that. Yeah, they and and so the entire film kind of becomes this eruption of of white male anger. It's the disaffected white male who is going to bring about the apocalypse because people aren't respecting him enough. He, you yeah. know, he's not getting the rewards that he believes he deserves um even though you know by all accounts and it's obvious that this guy is very capable he's very intelligent he's able to design these things right but you know nothing that everything that happens to him seems to be a result of him being a jerk to other people 
yeah right? being creepy being mean being like you know lecturing people about how they're going they're all going to die you know? mm-hmm. yeah exactly. um yeah and and i i do think that there's at least there's a swath of some of the reactions to ghostbusters answer the call um is definitely a result of that of a lot of fanboys who have been very, who are very dedicated to the idea that they are the downtrodden and basically being told and that the world should suffer because of it. Mm-hmm. And basically being told like, actually you're, you're not actually, you're the bad guy, right? You're the villain. You're the one who is, that has to be stopped basically. And that's, that's a tough thing to show in like this very light comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and it, it it does so very, very well. It's it's extremely effective um, for people who understand what it's trying to do. Because it's not just women who love this movie. It's a lot of... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a lot of oppressed people who love this movie and who understand it and who, who understand that... Um, uh, I just lost my point. I was going to say something really, really smart and profound, and it just left my brain. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's. It, I think one of the the really great things about it, and I think what what it does so well is the fact that it doesn't try. It definitely is inspired by, adapted from, and references a lot of the original movies. But it doesn't try to be the original movie. It tries to take the things about that that made it so good and so um, so long-lasting and, and have this like deep, rich history and people love it. And it, it uses those elements to tell something that is very relevant and rooted to our time. And one of the reasons that it works so well is that it's written by a woman, you know, Paul Feig, that's one of the great things. That's one of the reasons that we love Paul Feig so much is that he doesn't just like, Hey, I'm an ally. So I'm going to make movies by and about women. He, uh, he really gets them involved. Like this is, he lets women tell the stories and he's just there to kind of guide the process. And, and it's so great. And, Katie Dippold, who plays the real estate agent in this also, she's the, she's the one who co-wrote it. And, um, and I just, I love that they use, um, these experiences of, of women being held back, but they never use it as an excuse. Like the women use that actually as a reason to keep moving forward and keep pushing ahead. They're not going to be held back. Even when Mm -hmm. you get that story, from Abby and Aaron about how they became friends and why they got interested in this work in the first place was because everyone else was mocking them and they were just like, no, we believe in this. And this is just, this is what we're going to dedicate our lives to. Well, that's, I, 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 I'm glad that you brought that up because I really wanted to talk about that also. I like the fact, and this is true for a lot of Paul Feig's films, so it's hardly surprising. Um, but I like the fact that so much of it is about friendship and is about female friendship. And part of Erin's problem is that she's had to suppress that side of herself for so long. Um, and she's, you know, kind of rejected all of the things that she cared about. She's rejected the friend that she was closest to. She's rejected, you know, all everything that kind of made her who she was. 
in trying to fit into this very patriarchal, very male dominated space. Mm -hmm. And which is like, it's admirable at the same time. She's gone a really long way. She's obviously a very capable, intelligent woman, right? Um, But she's had to sacrifice so much of who she is in order to get there. And what a lot of the film is about is her kind of finding her way back. Um, finding her way back to her friends, finding her way back to Abby, to like a group of people that value what she values and that she can use her intellect and her abilities to do something that she actually cares about versus what other people tell her she is supposed to care about. And all of that is then framed within this, this story about female friendship and about getting to be total like dorks together. Um, and and yeah. I really like in the extended edition of um, of the Blu-ray, which kind of develops some of this a little bit more than it does in the theatrical release, uh, where Aaron and Abby do their like ghost girl dance, <laughs> and they do the <laughs> presentation, and everyone's laughing. And at the end of it, Holtzman like gets up, and and you are almost expecting there to be a punchline, but there isn't. She's just like, I am so glad that you guys got back together. She's like hugging them. Mm-hmm. And this is really sweet and wonderful. You know, it is about this, like, we're total dorks, we're total nerds, and we're going to embrace that and be allowed to be that. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. I do too. I do too. Love it. So do you have- Should we talk about the dumb male blonde secretary? Yes, I think that we should. I was was going to say, anything else, just like, I think we should talk about Kevin. Yes, we We need to talk about Kevin. Played by Chris Hemsworth, who honestly just needs to do more comedies. Chris, like, I don't know, Hollywood cast him in, like, dumb romantic comedies. (laughs) He's he's so perfect for it. He's funny. He's talented. He can dance. And it's he's just so wonderful. And he's freaking hot. (laughs) And he's he's so hot. And I like the, again, you know, this film really does use the female gaze a great deal, particularly in relationship to him. Mm-hmm. I love how just like, as soon as he walks in, particularly Aaron, it's just like, oh, <laughs> oh my God. It's like her brain just short circuits. Like she, yep. can't, she cannot manage what this is. And to be honest, same. Like I, if Chris Hemsworth just walked in the door, you'd be like, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to speak to this person. <laughs> yeah. I will say, I've not had the pleasure of actually meeting him, but I have been in the same room with him at a press conference for Avengers, actually. And, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I I was, when I saw him, I was just like, I'm so glad I'm not interviewing him, because I don't think I'd be able to. <laughs> He's just, just like, like this perfect vision of a man. Uh, there, there's a great, uh, there's an interview with Melissa McCarthy back when the film came out, and, and she talked about, like, being angry at Chris Hemsworth because he was so perfect. I think that and was like, on the Graham Norton show when yeah, they were she, the girls were there. Yeah. Yeah, she she's just like she's just like, shut up, Chris. Shut up. <laughs> just so mad about yep. like his perfection. <laughs> um but he he's great, you know, and and I, I like the fact that they have this cute little reversal of it's like, oh the dumb blonde secretary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's perfect. It's it's so perfect and and it's so intentional. That's yeah. the thing too. Like they knew exactly what they were doing when they gave us Kevin. 
uh, before we started recording, I was actually thinking about that. And, and I, I was like, yeah, I really just want to say to some of these ghost bros to just, just be like, well, you've got someone you can identify with. In this film. <laughs> I mean, there is Kevin. They're so, not you know, hot. What are you complaining about? You can, you can be Kevin, right? We'll be the yes. Ghostbusters. You can be Kevin. Well, they get their uh, choice. They can either be Kevin or they can be Roman. Rowan. <laughs> <laughs> Those are their choices. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so anything else though that we want to mention about this i i think that you know now afterlife is coming out mm-hmm. um it has not gotten great reviews although some people seem to really like it uh some people not so much um i'm just i'm mad about the existence of it because i'm i'm mad about the way the ghostbusters answer the call is treated and i'm mad about the fact that particularly women keep on being treated as though we're secondary we're not really fans of ghostbusters all of this stuff yeah that's honestly that's been my thing it's never been about the quality of this movie although i'm skeptical um because those trailers make it look like it's completely missed the point of the original movies which is weird since it was made by the original director's son um and he grew up like going to the sets and stuff and like hanging out with these guys. So it it seems kind of weird, but I think it's more indicative of just how serious people take their fandoms these days and and how even something that was just fun and silly has become, you know, so many people have wrapped their entire identities in certain fandoms and they they can't find the humor in it like they just they take them they take it so seriously because it it has become who they are and so that's really my been my main issue with afterlife and and also just a lot of ptsd from how we've we have been treated for the last five years um anytime you dare to say anything positive about answer the call um it it's like it's like a you know an alarm bell for yeah for um or dinner bell for these dudes that still have so much hate and it's like i don't understand why you care so much that i like this movie how does it affect your life that i enjoy this movie and that it does something for me and it means something to me Mm -hmm. you know and so that's where my lack of enthusiasm for afterlife comes in and also i really still take issue with the comments that jason reitman made a couple of years ago about returning the franchise to the fans. Cause it's like, well, what are you saying about me then? Because yeah. like we've talked about before, we like all three of the movies that we've gotten. We enjoyed, I don't know if you watched both of them, but I enjoyed both versions of the cartoon show that was out. I had the cereal yeah. when I was a kid, like, come on, how am I not a fan? <laughs> no. Yeah, ex- exactly. It's this attitude of like, well, the, there's the real fans, right? Mm. And, and what is, what is underlying that is that we're not talking we're not talking about marginalized people we're not talking about women we're not not talking about people of color um we're not talking about anyone other than straight white men who grew up with ghostbusters and that that's really what this is about um and and it is it is that further marginalization it's saying you know and i even take issue with the fact that i've read so many reviews again primarily by white men who whether they like the the new film or dislike it won't even mention the existence of answer the call 
Mm-hmm. Um, or if they do, and this is, I, it's driving me crazy. Don't do it, guys. You keep on saying it was critically, it was a critical failure. It wasn't. No. It wasn't. It has 74% on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, I, I don't know. I know that like Rotten Tomatoes is not perfect. Uh, we've talked about issues around Rotten Tomatoes before, but you cannot say that based upon just facts, not opinions, facts, that it was a critical failure. It obviously was not. It also was not a commercial failure either. Did it make as much money as it should have? No. Did it make as much money as it would have if it had been released two years later? No. But it was successful. It made like 300 and something million dollars. And and it was, you know... And yeah, yeah 74% on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, it, yeah, and- it was not a fail of, failure of a film. By by every metric that we have, it was not a failure, right? Mm-hmm. And now it could maybe it failed for you, maybe you didn't like it, but that's a different story, right? right. So we really need to stop marginalizing that film in particular. Mm-hmm. I think that a good place to close this off because we're talking about fandom um, is we did get a question from at KH Derek, um, and I'm just going to uh, shorten the question just a little bit. Um, and what he asks is uh, basically, should fandom be discouraged? Given how fans of a franchise take on a false sense of ownership, um, is fandom inherently toxic? And I, on the one hand, I think that contemporary fandom is toxic. Yeah. Uh, And it's gotten worse in some ways. And I think part of that is because of the internet. And part of it is also because of the empowerment of certain sections of fandom. Um, And some of that is a result of how things like Star Wars, uh, Marvel, and DC have become such major cultural juggernauts, right? They're not, um, these are not liminal things anymore. These are not things that just nerds are interested in. It's reached a point where um, this is mainstream. And I, I think that there are a lot of fans who don't know what to do with that because they feel like their spaces have been invaded. Mm-hmm. Uh, they feel like that, you know, and. And what's happened is, and this is, I think, part of what's going on, is that their spaces have not just been invaded, their spaces have been invaded by marginalized people. They've been invaded by women, they've been invaded by trans people, by people of color, etc. And suddenly they're being told the things that I loved that define me, right, which is always a problem, don't let things define you, Um, the thing are now being taken over. That's the idea about are being taken over by all of these people who are not like me. And for so long, fan spaces have been very closed off to, to anyone from the outside. And now they're being very opened up. And, and as a result, there's, there's this kind of internecine conflict going on. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think I think fandom as an idea isn't necessarily the problem. I think that the commercialization of fandom is what has really ushered in this toxic era that we're in. And I just, I will never understand. I'm very much a like what you like, ignore what you don't. Who cares? Why does, why does stuff that's outside of your personal, you know, choice of preferences, why does that have to matter? You know, like, I just, I never will understand it. It's when, when Answer the Call was coming out, 
Um, or even when they first announced it and it was going to be girls. I mean, I personally was just like, well, I don't want them to do this just for the sake of, of gender swapping. Like, do something different. And then I saw the movie and I was like, oh, now I understand why they did it this way. Um, but there were people that were just like so, they were like gnashing their teeth, crying in the streets. This is ruining my childhood. And it's like, okay, then your childhood must have been very sad if this one movie 20 years later, 30 years later could ruin it. Um, and, and I just, I think that the, so much of that is just because of things like the, the rise of Comic-Con, which is not about comics anymore. It's about fandoms. And, and I think that those kinds of things have just completely changed what fandom is. And now it's become like just this competing mess where something has to be good and, and everything else is bad. And, and it's, it's just, it's really sad. It's like, I just wish that we could go back to a world where people just, like I said, got to like what they like and not worry about the rest. Well, and then, yeah, exactly. And then it produces this kind of reaction to to the behavior of fandom where people then begin being like, well, Marvel has never done anything good, right? So you get sort of this reactionism going on. And a lot of it is because, you know, the second that you start criticizing Marvel, um, you suddenly get, you know, 15 dudes shouting at you being like, how dare you not love this, you know? And it's, it's like, I just don't love it. Like, it's, it's okay. You can love it. I just, I just don't. Um, And, and yeah, just, just to close it out in terms of um, answer the call, I, we cannot forget the violent misogyny and racism Mm -hmm. that came out as a result of that film. And that's one of the things that I think, again, has really annoyed me about our current discussions is that it seems like there is a swath who's just completely did either didn't pay attention or have forgotten about it or don't want to talk about it yeah it's easier Um, to just not even recognize that it happened yeah that that you know leslie jones was driven off of twitter for a while by racist misogynist comments Mm -hmm. um this film was met with just violent rhetoric like really shockingly violent rhetoric and again and as i think melissa mccarthy and leslie jones both said just like it's a movie like Mm -hmm. it's a why are you so angry about me getting to bust ghosts for fuck's sake yeah yeah exactly um so yeah we need to not forget that because this it, it was obviously never really about ghostbusters ghostbusters was just kind of a catalyst for it yep so I think that will close this out. We do. We are fans of Ghostbusters. We love Ghostbusters. We We've just spent like an hour talking about them. We love all the Ghostbusters that we have seen. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I if Afterlife is good, I think that that's great. I think that's a good thing. Like, yeah. um, I, I'm, I'm skeptical. And everything that I've heard I makes me more skeptical. But if it's good, it's good. You know, and I, I think that that's important. So thank you so much for being with us and for listening. And we are probably, I think we're going to get back to film noir uh, next week, have a chat about that. But um, this, this was fun to do as well. Um, and thank you as always to our patrons uh, who include Adriana Ali, Connor, who is brand new. Hello, Connor. Thank hey. you so much. Um, we'll try to get stuff out to you very soon. Uh, also, thank you to Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. 
Um, thank you so much, guys, for supporting us. And if you want to support us but haven't joined up yet, uh, that's patreon.com slash citizen dame. We are going to have more bonus episodes coming up. We're going to try to get all of like the merchandise and things like that that we're promising out. Um, and also, you just get to help us keep the lights on and keep us talking about Ghostbusters Answer the Call, which we will definitely talk about again at some point in the future. <laughs> For sure. Uh, we also have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod. And we have a Ko-Fi account, co uh, ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. If you just want to throw us a couple of dollars. Our website is citizendamepod.com. And up there, you will find all kinds of reviews. We've got Karen's review of Tick, Tick, Boom and Power of the Dog. You can have some more stuff um, from AFI up there. I've got a few Blu-ray reviews coming up. And my, most recently, I posted a, a long essay that I wrote back in grad school about Ghostbusters. So check those things one. out. Thank you very much. Even though I was rereading it, and I was like, oh, man, this is like, this is like, 2010 lauren being all academic <laughs> in my 20s uh those are the days you do use the word liminal a lot in it. i do i do <laughs> like i'm taking this shit seriously uh, <laughs> uh you could also get in touch with us a multitude of ways our email is citizendamepod at gmail.com we are on twitter and instagram at citizendamepod and we are on letterboxd at citizendame and on letterboxd you will find various lists i'm also going to put up a film noir list just for funsies and uh and you can enjoy some of the films that we enjoy you can also get in touch with us individually i am on twitter instagram and letterboxd at lh business karen where are you I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. And that will close us out for today. We will talk to you guys later. Bye. You know what? Screw that. We are scientists. Plus Patty. Thank you. Okay, we believe in provable physical results. That's what we believe in. Yes, we do. Preach. Preach. You know what we're going to do, ladies? We're going to catch a ghost. We're going to bring... We're going to catch a ghost. Bring it back to the lab. Kevin... Yes, can, boss. Can you answer the phone that's ringing? Buddy. Yes, I can, boss. Uh, Ghostbusters. Oh, conductors in the metaphysical. Okay, cool. See ya. Hey, guys, which one of these makes me look more like a doctor? Me playing saxophone or me listening to saxophone? Who was on the phone? Uh, the Stonebrook Theater. There's a goat on the loose. I'm going to load up the car.